You're listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Bob Trapani Jr., historian, author, photographer, aids to navigation technician, and executive director of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jeremy. It is great to be back, and we're, I'm looking forward to talking about Goat Island again today. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, so this is January 29th, 2023, and this is episode 210 of Lighthearted. Very shortly, we will hear part two of a two-part interview about Goat Island Light Station on the southern main coast. Before we get to that, I was thinking of something I wanted to clarify. This podcast is produced by the United States Lighthouse Society, of course, but you are executive director of the American Lighthouse Foundation. People get the two organizations confused. They are not the same organization. Bob, uh, could you possibly give a little brief history of the American Lighthouse Foundation and about your uh, involvement with it? I sure can, Jeremy. The American Lighthouse Foundation was actually founded as the New England Lighthouse Foundation in 1994. And its purpose was to set out and actually get involved with restoring uh, light stations, historic light stations. And our first project was in 1995 at Race Point Light Station on Cape Cod. And at that point, uh, we achieved the restoration of that station within the three-year period that the Coast Guard had asked us to do. And by 1998, it eventually opens an overnight stay, popular one at that. And then uh, with that, eventually came a number more lighthouses that were licensed by the U.S. Coast Guard to the American Lighthouse Foundation. We changed our name to the American Lighthouse Foundation in 2000 to kind of reflect the larger uh, influence uh, that the organization was uh, seeking to have and also having in different areas. And also this, one of the strengths of our organization was the formation of what we call chapters. And so these are uh, people in their community who care about their particular lighthouse and of course lighthouses more in general, but they really like their, their lighthouse in their community. And uh, for those lighthouses that we have chapters for, it's been a great success in watching these people really have that passion for the project and make some big things happen over these places over the years. I became a director in 2005, so 18 years in mm -hmm. this position, and it's just been a joy to work with people like you. Uh, we've seen a lot, learned a lot, uh, met a lot of great people, and I think, you know, not only are we impacting lighthouses, but we are impacting people, and I think that's as much important, especially, in, you know, one day down the line when we all hand this baton off to somebody else. Uh, I think how we impact people now really matters. Very well said. And I just want to point out, you've been on the podcast a bunch of times, but you were in one of the very first episodes. In fact, when I decided to do the podcast, you were the first person I interviewed. Oh, that's <laughs> uh, right. It wasn't the using the first episode. I forget which number it was. It was a little bit into it, but uh, but you were the first interview and you did go into some more detail about the history of the American Lighthouse Foundation. So I'll refer people to that if they want to hear more. And also, of course, the website, lighthousefoundation.org. You can learn a lot more there. Personally, I've been involved with both the American Lighthouse Foundation and the U.S. Lighthouse Society for a long time. I joined the board of directors of the American Lighthouse Foundation in the late 1990s. I've been the president uh, for a couple of different stretches. I founded the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses as a chapter back in 2001. And meanwhile, over the years, I've written many articles for the U.S. Lighthouse Society's magazine, The Keeper's Log, and uh, I joined the staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society as historian three years ago, a little more than that. Uh, there is no competition between the American Lighthouse Foundation and the U.S. Lighthouse Society. We're very much all on the same team. Oh, we sure are, Jeremy. The, the, the team of Lighthouse Preservation will welcome anyone with, with open arms. Uh, it's just uh, the mission is just too big for any one organization. And yeah, we all, we're all on the same team. We all care. We all want to do positive for the lights. And we want to, like I said earlier, we want to make sure we're impacting people. So that's a big job. And the more the merrier. It's great. Agreed. Uh, as I mentioned, today we're going to hear part two of our two-part interview with three people about Goat Island Light Station and Cape Porpoise in southern Maine. It is not, I'd say, one of your really iconic tall lighthouse towers, uh, but Goat Island uh, is very attractive in its own way, I think, and it's very important historically. It sure is, Jeremy, and I think, you know, when you look at Goat Island, it is a classic harbor light, 
And I think that's awesome because when you think of the classic seacoast lights, they were actually guiding ships, you know, along their way on a journey. But for a lighthouse like Goat Island, it was pointing the way home. And I think there's a story for those harbor lights to be had that it was a, it was such an important part of the maritime community in those harbor areas. So uh, for certain Goat Island, I think another one of the beautiful things with Goat Island is, is that for an offshore lighthouse, you can be on land and get a reasonably good view of the lighthouse, which actually is a positive because a lot of offshore lights, many people can't see. And so it's hard to, to place all that in context, but with Goat Island, it's offshore and you can see it. And I just think it's the best of all worlds there for an offshore lighthouse. Yeah, uh, I believe it's in the neighborhood of three quarters of a mile offshore, give or take a few feet. You and I have visited Goat Island together a couple of times, I believe. And another one of my visits there over the years was with the late Candace Clifford, who uh, you also knew, Bob. She was an author and researcher and historian for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. So that was a memorable day as well. With the light station at the entrance uh, to the harbor uh, and I'd say a, a pretty substantial lobstering fleet for a small harbor there. I, I think that Cape Porpoise Harbor is really one of the more picturesque small harbors on the main coast. It really is. And part of the charm of that is when, you, when you're seeing that lighthouse or if you're trying to go from the mainland out to the island, uh, you're getting to see a working waterfront there, which I think is great and puts context, more context into why lighthouses uh, we feel are still important today. Um, but yeah, the maritime connections, they're, they're all threads that bind this fabric that we just so much love. It's lighthouses, it's the lobstering industry, it's it's so much of the waterfront and the harbor areas that, yeah, we just can't get enough of it. And and Cape Porpoise and Goat Island Lighthouse, it's, it's a hand-in-glove fit. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting combination of a working harbor there, working waterfront, and tourism. Uh, with a couple of restaurants there at the end of Pier Road uh, and the parking area there gets uh, more than full almost every day uh, from spring through fall. Uh, it can be a little hard to find a parking space there. But at the same time, I think part of the attraction is the fact that you've got a lobster fleet there. You've got lobstermen landing their catch right there. The harbor master's office is right there. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting combination of tourism and, uh, and traditional, uh, work there. It, it sure is. And I know you've seen the same, but I've been there in the summertime and you mentioned tourism and watching people be able to sit on the benches or on the rocks and just relax and look out at the lighthouse. Uh, I think that's really special too. It is, you're, you're fortunate to get a parking space down in that area, but if you can, what have you? Yeah. I used to bring tours there when I was doing van tours, uh, tours of my minivan for 11 years. I would go there sometimes and uh, often have to wait for a parking space. So I have plenty of uh, experience with that. So let's talk a little bit more about Goat Island before part two of our interview. So if you could just help me kind of recap uh, some background about Goat Island. Sure, Jeremy. Goat Island Light Station was established in 1833 to help guide mariners into the busy harbor at Cape Porpoise. In 1859, the present tower and house were built. When it was rebuilt that year, a fifth order Fresnel lens was installed. In 1990, Goat Island became one of the last light stations in the United States to be automated. Since 1998, the property has been owned and managed by the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust. The trust is dedicated to preserving land for use by current and future generations and has conserved over 2,800 acres of land from development. There are three guests in today's interview. Scott and Karen Dombrowski have been the primary caretakers of Goat Island for the trust for about 30 years, and Tom Bradbury is the executive director of the trust. That's right. You and I went to the headquarters of the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust a few weeks ago to record this conversation. With your knowledge uh, of lighthouses, Bob, and the main coast, you brought a lot to the interview. So thank you very much for that. Let's listen to part two of our conversation about Goat Island Light Station in Maine now. I know there was the history of shipwrecks uh, around the island. We talked about that a little bit, boat accidents and so forth, obviously. Uh, anything else? Uh, and I and uh, Tom alluded to the fact that Karen and Scott, you uh, were involved in uh, rescues over the years. Any anything you want to say about all, all that subject? After living out there, 
we could certainly see that the, the plea of the keep people of Cape Porpoise to keep it manned had some merit. Um, because I would say, let's see, we're just about at 30 years now, and I'd say 25 out of the 30 years we've been involved with uh, helping people, whether it be pilot them, piloting them into uh, a safe mooring space during you know, foggy or stormy periods. Uh, we've had boats catch fire, boats go up on the rocks. Uh, there was one time there was a plane crash with six uh, passengers, or I think four passengers and the, and the pilot and the co-pilot uh, that had occurred about a mile off of Goat Island. What we see a lot more so now is because there are so many small boaters and especially kayakers, a lot of times they are not experienced to be doing what they're doing. And when you go to the ocean side of Goat Island, there are ledges that create quite you know, some situations where the water walks, washes back and will capsize or twirl a canoe or a kayak around. And, you know, I've had, I think, you know, probably the most significant thing in more recent times was I was giving a tour up on the, the lawn and I was talking to people and this, this gentleman crawls up soaking wet over the rocks and he walks up to me and he says, I lost my buddy. I lost my buddy. And I said, you know, where were you? And uh, the, the, the conditions were not such that anyone should have been on the outside of the harbor in a kayak. But he said that he was next to his buddy and they got into some swells and then he turned and looked and couldn't find him. So in, in this instance, I immediately excused myself, went and got a VHF radio and my t cell phone and binoculars and headed up into the tower and started with 911 and started a search pattern with the binoculars. And fortunately, I was able to locate um, this person. They, they did stay with their kayak, but it was too too dangerous to go out. Even the, the boat that the town had, they couldn't go out to assist. And I, I kept an eye on them and I stayed on the radio with Marine Patrol and, and with the local fire department and could eventually see that if he could hold on to the boat and hold on long enough without getting hypothermic, that he was going to wash up onto one of the islands. And it, it was a low tide and I was able to direct the rescue people out onto the island and where he had washed up and they were able to uh, to get him off and get him to the hospital and fortunately he he didn't suffer any any major injuries or or anything else and quite honestly after i met him the following year i thought he took the thing way too lightly he was really joking about it and he just does not realize how close he came to not coming coming home that night Perhaps Scott could tell you about how he and Karen uh, assisted a young man that was lost off the island around Christmas time. Oh, yes. Uh, so, well, this, this one didn't have, have a very good ending. Um, there, were, there were two young men that they, they used to visit us out on Goat Island. Uh, they went to the landing boat school, and they were getting ready to... Uh, go home for the Christmas holidays, and they got together and had themselves their own little Christmas party and decided to go down to the shoreline, grab a couple of kayaks, and go for one last paddle before they left. Uh, their other two buddies, they all shared a house together. They went off to bed, and these other two guys never came home. Um, so we heard the helicopters the next morning, and it sounded reminiscent of when we were searching for Dick and started to seek out just what, what happened. And I went out immediately and started to, to look around to see if there was any indication. I, I did have, I think I had the Masons working out there, and they had seen two kayaks washed up on a spit of, of land over on the island, Folly Island, across the channel and didn't know what, what came of those. But what we ended up finding is that they had almost made it to Goat Island. There's um, a small island, Milk Island, off of, of Goat. And 
uh, found their clothes, their cell phones, their wallets all folded up on the rocks, and they tried to make it to Goat Island and uh, did, did not make it. Um, their remains were found the following spring, um, washed up on Vaughn's Island by someone that was walking their dog. But, you know, very, you know, kind of a very emotional time because uh, the families for, were from out of state and uh, we, we had them come to our house and we tried to comfort them. We had um, our pastor over to, to try to help with things and, and ultimately, um, one of the parents came to me on Christmas Day when we were about to, to head off with family and asked me if I would bring them out to the island where the remains were found. And it, it chokes me up to this day, that, that experience. But And there's a memorial to them at Cape Porpoise, right? There's like a stone bench that's a memorial. Yeah, there is a stone bench that uh, the, the family's commissioned so that other people could could be aware of what happened and, and look out at the you know the beautiful place that they they spent their last moments. Very very sad story, but it is a, a suitable memorial. I thought it was nicely done. Bob, did you want to ask something? I sure do. It's been light of all this talking about. You guys know these waters just outside and inside the harbor as well as anyone. So when we have storms arise, what directional approach concerns you the most in terms of the structures themselves? Usually, I mean, it's stuff out of the south, you know, the, the south, south, southeast, south, southwest. That's when we get the, you know, we'll get a storm surge and then we'll get uh, the winds behind it that will end up basically, uh, along with the surge, it will wash over the island. And that, that becomes a bit unnerving when you're on the island and you look across to the, the boathouse knowing that you just couldn't get there because there's three feet of chop going across the lawn or I know Dick used to pull an eight-foot dinghy in the front door and leave it there for the winter and sometimes before we rehabbed the kitchen there was a window that looked out to sea and the waves would hit the back of the house and pop up and you'd see them in the kitchen window. So as you can imagine that is one of the more dangerous times to be there because you don't know when the the water's going to stop coming up. The thing that's nice is unlike river, living on a river where the water continues to rise days after a storm, you know that if you can make it through those crucial hours of high tide, you know, that you made it. But but it can be very unnerving because there's very little to nothing that you can do for yourself other than probably go and hunker down in the tower. Imagine how many keepers and their families had a sigh of relief on those storms as the tide started to... Oh, abs- absolutely. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So in light of that, you, you're talking about how tough it is to come in there, boaters coming into the harbor from sea. So just how difficult is it for them, for them to navigate through that confined area between the Folly Island Day Beacon and the Goat Island Day Beacon and the buoys? I mean, we got a lot of inexperienced people. What is dangerous about that area? Well, I, I probably know that the, the, the area is naturally dangerous and, and can't change that. Um, un- unfortunately... It's folks that are inexperienced that don't take the time to look at a chart or have GPS on board or something like that where they will not go in and start at the entrance of the harbor out at the bell buoy. They'll come in from one of the sides where they're going over ledges and not even aware that they're doing that. I mean, it, it during a storm, I don't really care what size boat you have, it is a wild ride through that gut. You know, you just see the boats pitching and rolling and, you know, there's a quick Hail Mary before they enter it. And fortunately, it doesn't last long because you get into the refuge of the harbor, um, you know, pretty quickly. But for, uh, you know, several hundred yards, it, you know, there's a, an element of danger. If you ever lose power, um, you're on those ledges. And, um, you know, I, I always comment sometimes during some of these storms, the Waves are huge. They look like Greyhound buses going by. So, you know, I think too what people inexperienced would not understand is sometimes as wind and tide oppose each other, oh, and what it, the swirl of that does, and so close the proximity to those ledges. So that to me, when I looked out at that, when I'm out on the island looking, I'm just like, that has got to be a nasty spot. When, it it can know. be, yes. So then, ta- in exp- you know, expounding on just what we talked about, you know, we have in uh, in the easy navigation world the, what we'd like to call the cousins of the lighthouse, and that is the buoys and day beacons. 
Um, I know those day beacons, they take a beating themselves, they're a little bit bent over and all, but I mean, can you just touch, you know, how important do the Mariners, do you see them giving them as much respect? Uh, and I know the prudent Mariners always going to actually probably consider the buoys even more important than the lighthouse sometimes. Mm-hmm. But not everybody, sure. I think, has an understanding of what those day beacons and, and the half-tide ledges they preside over. Do you get a sense of that? People they, understand that fully? No, and I, I guess it, it goes back to my previous comment with people not starting at the entrance of the channel and coming in from the sides. And over the years, I mean, there are fewer aids to navigation out there now. There was a Whistler buoy that's gone. There's another nun that kind of prevented the boats from coming in from the side um, that kept breaking loose and uh, ultimately was was not replaced. Uh, Right now we have a day marker that's in a ledge on the Goat Island side that looks like it's about to fail. And that one is really important. Um, that is literally on the, on the edge of the rocks and you venture over a little bit further and, and you're in trouble. So that's actually something I'd want to report and see if that's something that could be replaced because it's starting to lean, lean way over and you can tell it's not going to last too much longer. Oh, day beacons but, are, are lifesavers under themselves. And, you know, I have a lot of appreciation for them because, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, from working at Owl's Head Light and seeing some of the half-tide ledges, if you're not familiar, like, say, at Owl's Head Light coming up Muscle Ridge or Owl's Head Bay, you see nothing. And then it's like just a foot under the water is this ledge, and depending on where the tide will be exposed or won't be exposed. Exactly, and, yes. Yeah, day beacons are lifesavers. Same thing. Yes. So I have a question that either Scott and or Karen uh, can take. And we talked a little bit earlier about your, your family life on the island, but I'm wondering if you want to say anything more about what it was like uh, raising two sons on that island for those years. It was interesting, rough, and wonderful. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. The day-to-day of being the mom out there, the only water we have is rainwater that's caught into cisterns in the basement. And in the summertime, there's no rain. So we as a family had to lug 30 gallon drums of water out so that we could we could bathe and 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 stuff there was never enough water to do laundry so it was going into the laundromat lugging the clothes in on the boat lugging them into the car back to the boat out to the island and the same with groceries i'd have to bring you know we were feeding two growing boys so we needed a lot of groceries so it was it was taxing people ask us how we disciplined the kids when they were growing up. And I don't remember ever having to discipline them because they understood that what we said was law. And when the kids were, I wanna say eight and 10, we let them go out fishing in the harbor by themselves in the power boat. And I had a whistle. If I blew the whistle, they came in. There was never any question or anything. And I think that, that helped them grow up to be the men that they are now. Um, one of them is a PhD chemist working with fusion energy. The other is a, a, uh, a product manager, product manager for Keurig coffee has a wife and two babies and goat Island is what helped raise the kids oh, yeah. to be what yeah. they are now. Well, it was, uh, I think I, I always use the analogous. It's like living on a small farm and back in those days, too, I mean, our organization was small. We did everything on a shoestring. I mean, all our furniture was stuff that we got by the side of the road, including lawnmowers. So we had like three lawnmowers out there in hopes that we'd get one started for that uh, that week's chores. But during late June and into July, the so much water condenses out of the air. It's like watering the lawn that you've got to mow the lawn three times a week. It gets really old really quick after two days when it doesn't even look like you've mowed the lawn. So the kids were very much a part of the chores. I think gave them, you know, good worth work ethic. It, um, they had responsibilities. As Karen said, they, you know, they really got it as far as the danger, dangerous aspects of being in a boat. You know, they got really good boating skills early on. And as she said, I think it's really contributed a lot to who they are now. They got to play the the trump card a few times and uh, you know when they were getting into college to say that they were you know lived at a lighthouse and it always got people's uh, curiosity up and 
and they bring people from work, um, you know, in present day, they'll bring them out there and show them where they grew up. And, and now they're, you know, they're coming around and, you know, being very passionate and appreciative of, of what they went through. At the time, it was just life. So they didn't, I don't think necessarily think it was something special, but now they can look back on it and know that it was. I think the other thing, in addition to the discipline, I would think the island life also gave them a sense of creativity, too. Yes. Both our kids, our younger son, our older son, bought his own lobster boat when he was 13 years old, had 50 of his own traps, and worked full-time on one of the big boats. So he learned the work ethic, and he actually has never asked us for money. He has always made his own way. Our younger son bought a kayak with all the money that he was earning doing lawn mowing and stuff. So he was always out on the rocks, going through the tide pools, going out in his kayak. They're just, he's very kind of crunchy granola. And the other son is, and they both, they both had cars that they rebuilt and they raced. But um, yeah, it was just neat to see how different they were. Yeah, how they thrived on that that island and that environment. And I remember uh, circa 1996 when I first visited you and interviewed you with my VHS camcorder, Scott, and uh, with uh, Eric. And I remember thinking how mature he was for his age. And it was just so obvious he loved it there so much. I mean, it was completely yes, obvious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. To move on a little bit more about the, the restoration of Goat Island Light Station, First of all, what period was chosen for the restoration? Uh, what time period? Uh, usually when you, you have a, a central time period you're aiming for with these restorations. What what did you choose and why? I used to frustrate the people because I used to call the because as part of our deed was that we had to pick an era to which we did any work to. But as an organization, we were still just getting by on a shoestring. So I would tell them I'd pick modern day era as as the, the time frame and, and they would shake their heads and you can't do that. And, well, as time went on, our organization grew, the support for our organization grew, and we were confronted with, with being serious about this. And we ended up choosing the mid nineteen fifties as our era to do any of the work to. And the reason that we did that was because in the 1950s and up until about 1962, all the buildings that were ever on the island were there. And we thought that that would afford us, if, if we ever had the opportunity to rebuild the structures, that you know we could put all of those things back. And that was just such a dream at the time. But Lo and behold, as, uh, as time went on, we were able to start thinking about doing work. We had the windows in the house were failing, the roof was failing, and we, we needed to get, get after some uh, pretty serious stuff. Well, you see, know what I like I, about that historical, that period of historical significance is, is obviously we probably know more about that period of time than we would say something maybe 75, 100 years ago. But another Very part true. Is, is, is that I think oftentimes the Coast Guard, the heritage of lightkeeping does not get as much attention, the lighthouse mm -hmm. service. So I think being able to, to shine a spotlight on that era sure, as well is sure. really cool. And have the keepers come back. You know, so exactly. Yeah. You know, and another couple of perks, I guess, that uh, I can't ignore is they, there was power out there and there was modern plumbing. So that's that made the whole thing a lot easier, but... Now we're experiencing uh, not having power there anymore, so yeah. we'll be working working on that. Yeah, we'll get back to that in a couple of minutes. I definitely want to talk about that, the whole power issue for sure. Uh, but uh, you just uh, mentioned how you work towards rebuilding some of the structures out there and eventually the, the covered walkway between the, the keeper's house and the lighthouse tower was, was reconstructed and the fog bell tower, which had been gone for quite a few years, and I was there in 2011 for the dedication you had. That was really cool. I took a lot of video at that event. Video I, I took is on, on YouTube. If people want to do a search for Goat Island uh, Dedication 2011, uh, it, it's on my YouTube channel. So uh, it was amazing. It was just a great thing to see. So how difficult was it to make all that a reality? It took a long time. I think we were about five years in the permitting process uh, to basically put the 
buildings back that were there at one time. But we uh, there was quite a process to go through and having to do phase one and phase two archaeological digs and getting permission from the Indian tribes. And um, it was pretty vast. But by about 2010, we were, were ready to start. And uh, we had procured some funding for it. So in 2010, we began and we rebuilt the, uh, I think we did the earthwork that first year and we rebuilt the fuel house where the coal was kept. Um, that's to the left of the keeper's cottage and we uh, worked on the bell tower and then we rebuilt the covered walkway and worked on the interior by rehabbing the kitchen, dining, and living rooms to back what, what they were like based upon some pictures that we had you know, from that era. Well, it's also so beautifully done. And uh, the walkway, I think, was built to, to last through the, the worst possible weather, we'll, we'll hope, uh, probably stronger than what was there before. Yeah, most definitely. We did try to take advantage of a little more modern-day technology, although it's, it historically looks accurate with the brick piers and the stone foundations. Um, they are capping steel-reinforced concrete that's bolted into the bedrock, and uh, we also put hatches in the walkway, much like the fish houses use, so that if you get a super high tide, the hatches will pop open and the structure will fill with water um, as opposed to, uh, you know, and hopefully give it the weight to stay there. And also the very center of the walkway is framed ever so slighter than the rest of it so that if something did have to wash out, if we could just lose the center of it and then just connect the two ends again, um, those are the, the different methods that we employed to try to keep it there as long as we possibly can. So I don't know if you want to uh, comment on any other uh, major restoration projects that have been completed over the years, but and I want to add a, a part two to that question is uh, what's most needed now? Well, aside from the power cable, we're going to get to that in a moment. You know, having to replace all 19 windows and we've replaced the roofs twice. You know, I mean, we're always working. I've rebuilt the, the slipways a couple of times. Uh, we're always working on the floats. We've rebuilt the, the winch, the cisterns, different pumps and filters. And uh, it's pretty much nonstop keeping things maintained. And what do we need now other than power? <laughs> Lordy me. Um, that's, it, it is huge. I would like to see the boat ramp. The when we you come to the island at low tide, there's no landing on it. We have slipways that go down to the water, but we've lost over the years about 60, 60 feet of the slipways, and there's no way to land comfortably if there's an accident or somebody gets hurt on the island at low tide because the the docks that we have in, they're not accessible at low tide. So yeah, with all the visitors, that is definitely a concern. Luckily, there's not too many people out there at low tide just for that reason. But it, uh, it, it would pose quite a problem for rescue people uh, if we had a heart attack situation or something like that. So I'd like to ask Tom a question. How has the community changed its outlook towards the lighthouse? You know, you go from a time period where people remember the lighthouse being staffed, then it's automated for so many years. People turn over, new people come in. How's the community reacted? ongoing through all this? I think the community has a universal love for the lighthouse through all of those years, but seen through a different context. In, in the early years, the houses that surrounded that harbor were all fishermen and fishing families that had been there for generations. Through the course of time, there's been a transition to where those are, some are seasonal homes, some are year-round homes, some are retiree homes, but the number of Actual working fishermen living overlooking the cove has changed dramatically over the years. So the, to those that were here earlier, the, the lighthouse was, was part of their existence in a very personal way. They were, they were on the water. They were going in and out of the harbor. The, the uh, lighthouse keeper achieved what I always used to call a, a native status. 
that that they may come and go, but they were somebody essential to the operations of the harbor. And and now the lighthouse is largely seen in in more of the context of how visually attractive it is to the harbor and not how functional it is to the harbor. And we can see that in some ways. I've been asked in the past to if it would be all right if we turned off the light because it they didn't like the sweep of it in their bedroom at night and the foghorn questions about, you know, it's too loud and that sort of thing. And it's, it's not a lot of people. I mean, it's a very small minority, but... Sometimes they're the loudest voice. But, but they, there were some... there Exactly. <laughs> there are some loud voices in that and some that were mar- that were successful in a way. And, and that's very frustrating. So my second part of the question is, is, I mean, obviously it was a ton of work and a ton of struggles over the years, but been a lot of success. How do you keep the community motivated when you have such success? There's a tendency to get complacent. Oh, well, they... But the project lighthouses are never truly saved. They always have needs. So... What are the challenges you see with that, with this this new, what we'll call the virtual reality generation that we're living in now? It's a constantly evolving effort to keep people motivated. And it's not just the lighthouse. The organization owns 2,600 acres of other parts of town. And we're still running projects. We're buying land still. We're, we're creating parks, refuges, that sort of thing. And the islands are part of a larger picture. So it's not just keeping them motivated for the lighthouse, it's keeping them motivated for the work of the entire organization. And fortunately, we've had great success in that regard, but it hasn't come out it hasn't come without the challenge of knowing that the people that you're appealing to vision of what you're doing is different. The the when we started out, the phrase that I would often use was that we're trying to save the community so that your grandchildren will be able to love it as we do now. And to me and those at the time, it meant a lot because we thought my grandchildren will be living here and I want them to know what this place was like and not have it lost. Today, the likelihood is that grandchildren probably aren't going to be living here so that the appeal isn't the future. The appeal of is what is happening right now and, and what it appears right now. And the challenge is to motivate enough people that they can see that what you talked about in terms of there's an ongoing need all the time. And it's hard because every year we come back and there's a different project. Sometimes there are two major projects in the same year as, as the same. When, the, when we were in 2011, when we were building the lighthouse, another group was involved with us was also building a garden in downtown to uh, honor uh, Mrs. Bush, Barbara Bush, and and other projects at that same time. So, so the challenge for funding is always ongoing. That's one of the reasons we started the children's program was that when we realized that kids were on devices more than out playing as we did, we had to find a way of connecting them to the town itself because they had no idea what went down different paths. They had no idea how to get to the islands or some of the basics that we grew up with. And so by starting the educational program, we, we ran field trips and, and took them out to these places and made, made them realize or had them realize that these were things they could do with their family on their own, that these were the special places that were a part of their heritage that they should know more about. So you know what? You just tell the community KCT's light just shines brighter. That's <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. So I think it's time we get to addressing the elephant in the room, <laughs> which would be the power cable to the, to the island. The underwater cable that supplied electricity to the island for so many years has failed recently. First, can you just uh, fill us in a little bit more, in a little more detail, exactly what's happened with that? Sure, Jeremy. The uh, the cable that has serviced Goat Island was put in in the early 1980s, uh, which makes it about 38 years old. Um, and typically, I guess I, I've heard that the, the life is around 30 years. So I guess in that respect, we've we've done pretty well. Um, we didn't really have any indication that we were going to have a problem. So when, when the lights went out on the night of November 2nd, we got up just kind of expecting that uh, a fuse had blown or, or something like that. CMP came down uh, that morning and they were able to confirm that there was power at the pole that was feeding Goat Island. And then they 
went out and checked the transformer on Goat Island and confirmed that there was no power to that. And because it had been, uh, it was not uh, installed by CMP, it it had been installed by the Coast Guard, that they didn't have any of that same type equipment. They just did not service it. So they did give us the name of a, a company on Target Utilities that came out the following Monday, and they brought a high pot tester with them, which meant basically they could send a really high voltage down the the conductors to find out if uh, just you know what their condition was. Initially, we were very happy when we went out to the island and we found uh, the, a, a break 212 feet from the oil house where the transformer is, which is around where the docks are. Thought, okay, no sweat. We'll cut out a piece of cable, splice another piece in, and we'll be back, uh, you know, back and running again. Well, all those hopes were dashed when we took that same piece of equipment back on shore, because theoretically we should have been able to send that signal from shore, and it should have measured about the same or measured the the remaining distance when it's sent from shore. But the signal could not and would not make it out there, and it indicated that there were possibly a couple of other problems with the cable somewhere along the line. About 10 or 15 years ago, we had had an issue with, with, with the cable and we were able to work around it. So this actually now took two, two of the three wires in the cable um, and they were basically not, not any good and which is what led us to the fact that we were going to have to replace the cable and not repair it in order to get power back. So what's next? Uh, are, are you uh, measuring various options how to uh, how to address this uh, this issue? We're in the early stages, but we have a group of of trust members, trust board members, um, you know, that have an interest in this. Basically, just started to pull a bunch of different ideas together: how we're going to market this, how do we appeal, you know, for the funds, and and what are all our options? Because we spent the last month, month and a half, just kind of getting the word out there. And it's been very good because we've gotten a lot of feedback. I get stopped all around town and uh, people suggesting different things. And I want people to feel as though they've, they've got a voice. And, you know, because they're the people we're also relying on to, to help support us and continue on with the, the programs that we have at Goat Island. The uh, Gulf of Maine class for the past couple of years have been studying ways to produce energy on the island, knowing that. The cable was old, and knowing that someday we would have to face this, so so they've they've been studying solar and wind power and and uh, tidal power and and other alternatives to to figure out if that's a viable option. And the goal now will be is to take that information and and do a need assessment for the island of what how much energy is is needed for any given time and find. Uh, what works best? You can have anything from a you know, combination of of solar with a diesel generator backup. Um, you could have have some winds. You could you could put the cable back. You could put solar out there and then supply electricity to the grid. All you know the the months of December to June. So there's all these different aspects that you know we're going to be taking a, a good solid look at. It's going to take time. The real challenge is going to be how do we start next year because everything is going to roll along the way it always has. We have the Boy Scouts coming out. We have two troops coming out in June, and they, they help us get the island ready for the summer. And it's nice if we can flush a toilet and cook some food and, and do some of the basics. So we'll probably come up with an interim short-term solution because uh, even otherwise, even if we went solar, it's not like we can call somebody up and have them put them on because the roofs are 13 years old on a 25-year roof. So you're talking about having to replace the roofs before you even get to the solar. And the problem with replacing the roof is? Oh, they're specialty shingles in order to meet the requirement for the historic preservation. And they have to be specially made and shipped from, from someplace else to be able to get them. So it, every option has its, has its obstacles. We're going to look at each one of them and try to come up with the uh, you know the most amenable solution that will meet our our needs and and the community's needs. To actually uh, simply replace the power cable to put a new cable there, we're talking what several hundred thousand dollars. 
the price that on target gave us is uh, they said the cable would be just the cable itself not laying it or anything would be sixty dollars a foot give or take ten dollars a foot so if you figure it out it's at sixty dollars a foot it's five thousand feet you're three hundred thousand dollars for the cable and then you got to lay it we have someone to lay it that's actually the least of our problems. And what they had suggested to me is try to find a cable manufacturer that will sell to you directly. And that's what I've been researching is who makes cable and how do I get in touch with these people so that when we get to that part of the discussion as our group, we've got that information. And uh, wouldn't it be great to just find a stray roll of cable somewhere that was left over from a you know ocean crossing project or something where you know we could could pick it up or it's an obsolete cable they don't make it anymore so that's i'm trying to put the feelers out in that direction now to see if we can really get that cost of the cable as an option uh you know reduced drastically from three hundred thousand dollars and as far as an interim solution for next year maybe one or more generators is that what you're thinking what my initial thinking was that we have uh, we had an eagle scout project that actually was addressing this issue so that we could keep the covered walkway open that we use as kind of a walking museum. Well, I went out last week because my thought was, what if we dedicated those three panels to uh, one of these battery banks, um, like a you know, battery wall, so that you could walk around the house and turn on the lights anytime you wanted to. And then if you needed to run the stove or you needed to, you know, pump water up to the sinks and all that, you could start a generator to do that. So that's kind of how I envision it happening. But when I went out to test the panels last week, now here are three panels that are only three years old and I'm getting no voltage out of any of them. You know, physically they look fine. But so that, that concerns me a bit that it's only been three years and they're not functioning. What does that mean if we put 30 panels up? But that is uh, just my, my initial thinking. If we could have that combination of the solar for, for lights and light, you know, small things, and then the generator to get us by uh, in the meantime. So the island did always have a generator on it, had a diesel generator out by the oil house that was removed, um, you know, when, when the station was unmanned. So we used to require everybody coming to the island bring a gallon of water with them. Now it's going to bring, you got to get, bring a gallon of fuel with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm confident you'll figure it out in the short term and, and long term. You've got a lot of good, good heads working on this. So look forward to, to following what happens there. So let me ask you, uh, Karen and Scott, are you still spending a lot of time out there in the summer like this past season? Were you out there? Uh, at the beginning of the season, yes, but we started a new program this year. We started a lighthouse apprenticeship program where we have nine young local families. They're people that grew up here. A lot of them are actually the kids that came out and played wiffle ball and golf and everything when our kids were growing up. They now have their young families and are about the same age as Karen and I were when we when we took over. So uh, I thought one of the best ways for people to learn would be to actually live there, encounter um, you know the people, encounter the situations, and it, it went fabulously well. So this was the first summer we, you know, s spent a lot less time. I certainly spent a lot of time going back and forth and teaching and and doing things. But um, I think that you know this is a good time to. Uh, these are the future stakeholders, you know, of this property and of the area, and and um, you know they're they're mature and of an age where they can help out, get involved, and and kind of be the next generation. So uh, we're going to continue to stay involved, uh, you know, completely, and, and you know try to direct things. But it may mean that we're not on the island, you know, quite as much as we have been for the last thirty years. Fantastic. I'm really happy to hear about that program. I didn't yeah, know about yeah. that. That's too. It's, it's been fabulous. Yeah, it's excellent uh, planning towards the future. So uh, if we just touch on public access on the island, uh, if someone, and I'm sure you get this a lot, someone says, oh, I really want to visit Goat Island Lighthouse. Uh, I know it's not open as a regular thing to the public, but is there a way people can, uh, can see it? Can that be arranged? Unfortunately, we don't we being the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust don't have the resources to be able to uh, conduct rides out to the island. Uh, we, we'd be doing that 24-7. Uh, we do right now, you know, between the months of July and August, 
Uh, we probably have between, God, it's, it's really gone up since COVID, between like 1,500 and 2,000 people visit. So a lot of those people are taking advantage of the small kayak companies that are local, Maine Coastal Kayak, and I think Kayak Excursions is another one where people rent. One of them will take people out for tours. The other one uh, will just rent you a kayak. And there's also a tour, eco-tours, out of the Kennebunk River uh, is also, they have a, a, a boat that, takes 18 passengers and they have helped us tremendously with the educational programs in the past and uh, transporting students but uh, and during the summer they will bring groups out to Goat Island and I've taught them how to give tours give history and, and that but for the most part uh, we're we're just busy um, you know as people come on shore you know, talking to them, meeting them, greeting them, making sure they're being safe and not doing anything foolish. You know, the summer months, we don't have a, it's not real strict. I mean, the, basically the lighthouse is open for people to come and enjoy pretty much every day. And the island is certainly open for exploration 365 days a year. You can go out right now and, you know, and still enjoy the beauty, but just not be able to get into the tower. One of the things that we've always been concerned with over the years is uh, acknowledging how busy the pier area is, and it's loaded with fishermen. The parking is very, very tight. There are two restaurants down there. We've never wanted to complicate it even further with something that we were doing. Our mission is to keep the harbor as it has been, a working fishing harbor, and and keep the lighthouse going and watch over them as well. So, Well... I second what you're saying about the parking situation there at uh, the end of the road, end of Pier Road there, the, the harbor. I have brought tours there in my minivan <laughs> over the years and sometimes not been able to find a parking space. So it's, it's a struggle uh, from spring through fall. It's a, it's a really, really crowded little area, beautiful area. And if people can drive there and park there at the end of Pier Road, they get a nice view. It's about, I'd say, about a half mile out to Goat Island. It's a nice view of the harbor. Three quarters of a mile? Okay. Scott would know. So he says three quarters of a mile. Uh, and it, that brings up something I want to just touch on quickly here, Scott. Uh, you mentioned before the, the, the extreme tides there and everything. At low tide, it's pretty much mud between the shore there uh, and Goat Island. And I believe you, and uh, I think multiple occasions, actually walked that uh, back and forth at low tide. Is that right? I have walked it many, many times. I don't advise it for most people. Um, you really got to create quite a style to get across there safely because about halfway across, it's more like quicksand. You've got to have good footwear on that will stay on, and you kind of go like you're race walking and move your arms and slide your feet so you don't get stuck in the mud. Uh, if someone ever saw it, I, mean, I used to have to go to work sometimes, and there wouldn't be enough water for me to get off the slipways, and I'd have to walk to work. And if people saw me coming across in a dress shirt and carrying a briefcase and sliding along the mud, it must have been quite a sight to see. I hope nobody saw it. <laughs> the lobsterman probably saw it and got a, got a, got a kick out of it. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, so we don't recommend that to people to try to walk out there at low tide. So uh, we're getting uh, close to wrapping things up here, but Bob, I want to bring you into this because about 10 years ago, the American Lighthouse Foundation awarded the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust its Keeper of the Light Award. And I was there sure. for that. And I'm just wondering if you might want to say a little bit about uh, why that was the, uh, the choice that year. Oh, I'm happy to. I think in the lighthouse world today, what we see is um, when organizations like the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust take over, they're multifaceted in their mission. And we even see from government agencies, some agencies are not very good when they have multiple missions at maybe safeguarding a property like the lighthouse. Well, this organization has done that. This organization has been able to put their focus on all of these facets of their mission. I think that's been awesome. I think one of the things that struck us too is, is the continuity. You know, the, you see the people that have stood and, you know, guided this organization forward for decades and been at the project. Another part, the adaptive reuse. You know, I think that's so important when you take over a lighthouse, what are you going to do with it? Well, at Goat Island, we can see some of that success. And then two, 
you know, when you watch the structure being, they had the keeper's house, the oil house, the lighthouse, that's being safeguarded. And then they're going to go one step further. They're going to rebuild that walkway. They're going to rebuild that bell tower. Those are statements not only for their stewardship, but their care of our history and that people coming forward can see this type of thing. And then even now through something challenging like this sub cable, I mean, we're going to watch this organization go forward and they're going to show that being able to stick to it, the passion, the devotion, they're going to figure this out. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be cheap. But, you know, I think that's a lot. A lot of lighthouse groups today, not only in Maine, but nationwide can learn from these types of projects. And, uh, you know, this organization, the Kenny Blancourt Conservation Trust, is a beacon for lighthouse preservation. Well said. I concur 100% with everything you just said. Yes, absolutely. So I have one final question. This one's for bonus points, all right? And this is for, for Karen, Scott, and Tom in any order you want to take it. Uh, and the question is, what have what has been or what have been, uh, plural, your favorite aspects of your involvement with Goat Island Light Station over the years? Who wants to take it first? Probably seeing people's eyes when they first come out to the island and they'd never been out there before. The other thing was raising kids out there and bringing their friends out and watching them play like real kids, climbing on the rocks and playing in the tide pools. Yep, for sure. I love living a life of yesteryear. It's, it's good, clean, hardworking living. You know, we're doing something that uh, very, very few people are, are doing now. There's just uh, the abundance of the maritime history of, of Goat Island as well as uh, that whole archipelago in Cape Porpoise is, is just fascinating and so cool to be able to share with people and I've always viewed it as a giant puzzle because there wasn't just a book to read about all this stuff. So over the years, as we meet some of the ex-keepers and, you know, people whose grandfather were keeping, and you get all these little tidbits of information that piece this whole thing together. Um, and, it's, you know, we're already 30 years into getting these little tidbits. We've gotten a lot, but there's so much more still to learn. And just being able to share the property with people, get young people outdoors, get them involved. I mean, they start learning about some of this shipwreck histories and different things. I mean, their eyes, I can't say, their eyes just open. They get bug-eyed about this stuff and just think it's so cool. Using, using it for educational purposes has, has worked out really well. And, you know, and it's led to Karen and I going into the school systems and giving, you know, giving talks and lectures and uh, slideshows and that kind of thing, and and they're so well received, as well. I don't. Know, it's it's our way also of just kind of giving back to our community that we love so much. Having grown up in town, the the lighthouse was always such a mystical place. We couldn't go on there most of the time. You could just see it from a distance, but you knew that it represented the history of our town for the last two hundred years. And it's seen everything. It's seen the storms. It's seen the sunny days. It's seen the wrecks. It's uh, seen the various ships as they in the fishing industry as it's evolved over the years. To be able to maintain it is an honor, and it's a symbol not only of our town but of our state. And it's wonderful to see people's reactions when they're out there and to have the ability to allow access to it that wasn't there before, and the ability to bring it back to what it was in the 50s and allow people to see that and. It's a lot of work along the way, but there's no one on our board or in our organization that doesn't love it and and know the responsibility of it and and consider it a privilege to be able to do it. So it's exciting and always fun. Uh, maybe not always, but mostly fun. I can look at, at the lighthouse. I can look at the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust, and I can say labor of love. And you can see the lighthouse really does, in a way, speak to you, speaks to the heart. And I think that's the biggest, biggest treasure of all. If we're going to save these structures, it's that that really is going to keep us going with this. Because there's some days I know we all want to just throw our hands up and say, you know what? But we never get to that point because it, it does talk to us. And I think that's, that's awesome. And next year is our 50th anniversary as an organization. And we just published a 50th anniversary book. And on the cover of that book is The Lighthouse because that's an easy symbol for what we're doing. And above the lighthouse is a rainbow, which spoke to us of kind of those magical moments in the past 
but also of the hope for going forward and, and maintaining these places for generations to come. Well, this is a really nice summing up by all of you in the last few minutes. And what, yeah, what a perfect symbol of hope, a rainbow over a lighthouse. You can't, that's like a double symbol of hope. You can't do better than that. The book, you've just shown us a copy of this new book, Tom. It looks great. And the name of the book is uh, Preserve Forever. Is that correct? To Preserve Forever, the history of the Kenny Bunport Conservation Trust. And I assume that'll be available soon online and so forth. It will. Copies are, are $100 and we're using that money to help fund some of the projects that we've been talking about today. Well, it's a it's a beautiful book and certainly uh, helps a great cause if people uh, want to get that. And the Kenny Bunkport Conservation Trust has a website people can uh, learn more from, right? Is that, what, what is the website, Tom? Kporttrust.org. So kporttrust.org. So uh, I want to thank everybody so much. This is just great. And this is way, way overdue. Uh, since I started the podcast in June 2019, this was one of the ones that's been in my mind that I really wanted to do. And I'm so glad I finally pinned you guys down <laughs> and got here today. Uh, so Tom Bradbury, uh, Karen Dombrowski, Scott Dombrowski, and Bob Trapani, uh, thank you so much for taking part in this discussion today. It's getting a little dark and threatening out. There's a storm coming, so I think we, we've got to end it here. But thank you. Thank you all so much. That's all right. They've left the light thank on. You, As Scott mentioned in the interview, you can visit Goat Island through a tour with New England Eco Adventures out of Kennebunk. Visit NewEnglandEcoAdventures.com to learn more. That's NewEnglandEcoAdventures.com. Yep. To learn more about the Kenny Bunport Conservation Trust and Goat Island Light Station, visit kporttrust.org. That's K-P-O-R-T-T-R-U-S-T dot O-R-G. Also on the site, you can order their 50th anniversary book, To Preserve Forever, The History of the Kenny Bunport Conservation Trust. So, Bob, any final comments about Goat Island before we wrap things up for today? Well, I know we've been talking about the underwater cable that's, you know, obviously now there needs to be a new solution for that. And just listening to uh, Tom, Scott, and Karen through this interview, I mean, they realize it's a really big job, but they're obviously not backing down. They're moving ahead, they're making the plans. And I think that's what makes their success at Goat Island so amazing is, is that they keep taking on these challenges head first. And it's not that they're not difficult, but they just keep plugging away and they got community support. And uh, I'm sure it's not gonna be easy, but I'm sure they're gonna have a, a, an answer to all of this. And it's, the project is just gonna continue to shine there out at Goat Island Light Station. I completely agree. They'll, they'll figure out a way to move forward, no doubt about it. Many thanks as always to all the volunteers, members and staff of the US Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about all the things the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers, including tours, preservation grants, and much more. Bob, thank you so much again for helping with the Goat Island interview and for co-hosting these two episodes. You're very welcome, Jeremy. I can honestly say I never have an opportunity that I don't learn something from these podcasts and from just working with you. I know when we get to talk about lighthouses, there's always something new that uh, I can learn from these types of things. And you, yeah, you just keep up the great work because uh, people are not only enjoying this, they're learning, they're getting some value, and they're gonna have a long shelf life and helping people beyond this time. Well, thank you for saying that. And I feel the same way. I, I learn so much every week myself. I feel like it's I'm going to school and learning about lighthouses. Uh, lighthouses are one of those subjects where, uh, you know, you can study them forever and it's like, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> so uh, it's so much fun talking to, to people like uh, the, uh, the three uh, involved with Goat Island and all these dedicated people I get to talk to every week. So I also want to mention that people can learn more about the American Lighthouse Foundation and all its projects at lighthousefoundation.org. Also, Bob, you and your family have a website called Moments in Maine at momentsinmaine.com. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, the family and I, we just enjoy, have for years, enjoyed going out and exploring the main coast. And as you know, uh, there's nothing, there's just so much beauty on the main coast, you'll never explore it all. And the website is really just dedicated to sharing some of those types of experiences and some of the things we bring together creatively from those experiences. Um, but it's just, it's a lot of fun. If people get time to check it out, um, maybe you'll share in a little bit of that passion for the main coast. 
Yeah, well, I'll just mention it again, momentsinmaine.com. And you uh, and your wife, Anne, who's also associate director of the American Lighthouse Foundation, and your son, Dominic, a great photographer, and your two daughters, uh, Katrina and Nina, are tremendously talented. So uh, it's worth checking out momentsinmaine.com and learn about all the, the talents and uh, interesting projects of the Trapani family. So thank you again, Bob. And as always, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine.